Soper, and I'm a librarian and visual artist in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Welcome to Teen People, the podcast where I track down people who were in Teen People magazine and ask them questions. Teen People was published between 1998 and 2006, and while their bread and butter was famous celebrities, their heart and soul was real teen content. In the year 2000, Teen People's then-publisher Anne Zarin said presciently, We make celebrities real, and real teen celebrities. This was anticipating influencer culture. What Gen Z does now on TikTok, Teen People was sort of trying to do in print with millennials. These young content creators sent in their poetry, selfies, letters to the editor, and shoutouts to long-distance friends. And unlike many of the other teen magazines, teen people printed their full names, ages, and locations, which makes this podcast possible since I use my library science skills to track them down online. When I came up with this idea, I originally thought of it as a documentary film or streaming series, very ambitious. But I'm not a filmmaker, and then 2020 happened, so I pivoted and turned my idea into a podcast. Nearly four years later, I've interviewed roughly 30 people about being in Teen People magazine and how they're doing now as people in their 30s and 40s. So join me as we stroll down memory lane and revisit my guests' formative years. doing something a bit different in this episode because my guest Rezi Ibanez was not actually in Teen People magazine. They reached out to me a year or so ago. They sent me a DM on Instagram and asked whether I could track down an old Teen People article that they remembered from the mid-2000s. Being a librarian, I was thrilled. A reference question about Teen People magazine. Yay! So I did a bit of digging in a database that I've used to find guests for this podcast. With a few keywords and a rough idea of the timing, I was able to find three possible articles for Resi. I sent them off, and it turns out that one of the three is probably the Teen People article that Resi remembers reading in the mid-2000s. The article in question is an it-happened-to-me kind of story. It was an article about a teenager who had come out to her friends and family and how that went, and it resonated with Rezi. Rezi is now working on a book about icons of their young adult years, and this prompted the reference question about Teen People magazine. So I'm obviously really happy that I could help with this project, and of course, I invited Rezi to come on my podcast and talk with me about this Teen People article and their own life and work. Rezi Ibanez is a poet, public historian, and community organizer based in Lowell, Massachusetts. 
I began my interview with Rezi by asking them to contextualize some of the language that we'll use in this interview, because I'd watched another interview or talk Rezi gave on YouTube, and they had spent a bit of time prefacing that interview with some historical context for talking about queer lived experiences. So since contextualizing the past is sort of what I do on this podcast and in my job, I thought it would be worth starting us off in the same way. I think maybe one of the articles you sent me, one of the people giving the story identified as queer, like mentioned the word queer. So like um, for me as a historian and as a historian who like communicates with the public and about these things sometimes, um, you know, I always kind of preface with like today, like more modern generations have kind of co-opted, not co-opted, but reclaimed the word queer, which, you know, going back like decades, way before teen people and maybe even during teen people's era to some degree, like queer was often used as a slur um, against people. So when I am communicating with the public about it, like depending on the era that I'm talking about, um, I will use the word queer because the farther back you go in American history, like the more the words change and don't mean the same thing that they mean today, right? So like um, kind of when we think about the letters that make up the acronym LGBTQIA and 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 it right, like those words did not exist largely before 1900, <laughs> more or less. So like, if you go to like the 19th century or even further back, like 18th century and so on, like there is no language. And so the only, this is why queer is often used in a lot of academic analyses, is because there is no other language to turn to um, that doesn't feel super clunky. And like, if you use it more than a few times, becomes super clunky in your writing, right? So um, queer becomes kind of the easy catch-all term. Um, but that being said, like, when I communicate with the public, I'm like, I'm not using it intentionally to, like, harm anybody who's experiencing this, like, education I'm providing, right? But it's just, this is what I do because there's no other word for it. It's interesting. That reminds me of that phrase you see on, on Twitter sometimes, none of these words are in the Bible. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> when I think about, like, more in like my writing life or my art making life like one of the resources I look to a lot is like etymology online and just like looking up the different word usages <laughs> um have you know some words like their entries are like so long because like they've gone through so many different definitional and contextual changes over time and that's just because I'm a nerd but <laughs> that's <laughs> that's where my brain goes <laughs> I consider myself a storyteller, I think, above all things. Um, and just the way I tell stories changes and I use different ways to tell stories, right? So like you were asking about a video I did about history and like for a, quite a long time, like 12 plus years, I worked as a public historian and um, I worked at a museum in my town. So we did like local history kind of research and programming and I've written exhibits and things like that. Um, so. And I was a history major in college. So like that was just kind of how I went about storytelling was through that kind of academic sense and museum sense. But um, I also do a lot of writing and I write mostly poetry, but I do like kind of memoiristic essays too. And um, that's another avenue for me to tell stories. And so that's just how I consider myself mostly as a storyteller. What was your relationship with teen people as a teenager? Did you read teen people or other teen magazines? 
I did. Um, I was trying to think about this today before we started talking and I feel kind of bad because like I read like a bunch of magazines and I think like I grew up working class so like I didn't have like years long subscriptions to them or anything like that. Like my mom like gifted me like a one year subscription each to like American Girl magazine. I read that like kind of end of elementary school age and I was like 10, 11 and um, YM magazine. I don't know if that was I had that. Yep. Yeah. Also so, around the same age. <laughs> yeah. So like I, I read that kind of around middle school years. And when I was older, I read teen people. And um, so I had like those one year subscriptions, like at different times of my life. And um, mostly I read whatever issues I can find in the local library <laughs> and take that home. Um, so that was uh, my relationship to just magazines in general. And um, I was trying to think like, what else do I remember from teen people? <laughs> because <laughs> it's been a long long time um and honestly like the the articles that you sent me that I was trying to research are like the thing that stick out to me in my brain um you know a lot of the other things I can think of like I think are mostly we're mostly in YM magazine instead of teen people but um yeah teen people was sort of the end of my magazine reading time <laughs> Mm. adolescence so mm. I remember like the stories about people coming out or um I think the other thing I remember too was like they used to have like kind of debate like pro-con pages I think and there was one about affirmative action which is on my mind because I was trying to figure out how to get into college and like navigating that as like a as a first generation Asian American person too was kind of like I don't know what to think about this and um that was really that stood out to me because that was just like very timely for what I was experiencing but hmm. um yeah I what mostly sticks out to me and from I think all of like YM and team people were like kind of the personal like first person stories that they had like I mean <laughs> I guess in a way it makes sense because now I write sort of like very memoir type poetry and, <laughs> and that's just where where it led me but uh yeah did you see yourself reflected in teen people magazine Oh man. Um not that I can remember in Teen People. I, I remember an article in YM magazine um that was about like underground punk scenes, I think, in different cities. And like I was getting into like the pop punk music of the early 2000s And so that stood out to me. Um and I think they had like a fashion article too that like talked about like mod fashion that was inspired by the Who and Quadrophenia and like that whole aesthetic of black and white and like bold colors, bold shapes that were also very similar to like pop punk fashion that I saw on MTV. So like that stood out to me too. But um, as far as teen people goes, I, I'm not sure if I saw too many people I related to necessarily, um, except for those articles that you sent me to. That was maybe the first time in the exception, maybe. Mm, wow. Mm. Well, let's get to the story that um, inspired this request. Um, so I'm going to use a pseudonym. I'm calling her Heather. Um, and I'm also using she, her pronouns just because that's all I, I have to assume because that's the, those are the pronouns she used with teen people. So with that said, the story was from a 2005 issue of Teen People, and it was a feature about real teens who had come out and the story behind the coming out and the consequences or benefits of coming out. Um, so this says, deep inside, 
Heather realized she was attracted to girls, yet she dated guys. Then she developed strong feelings for her best friend, and she just couldn't keep them a secret. So in the article, it says she went to confession, and she told the priest, who she says yelled at her. That's the direct quote from Teen People. She told Teen People, I was scared that I was going to hell, but I couldn't help liking girls. She told two of her friends who were supportive, but they warned her not to tell the friend she had feelings for. She did, and the friend didn't speak to her thereafter. She started drinking. She had an encounter with a male friend, which she'd hoped would, quote, turn her straight, but it didn't, and the experience was uncomfortable. She told her parents her father was supportive, but her mother ignored her and didn't want to have that conversation, though she told teen people that her mom was coming around. The family had moved by this time, and she was in a new school where she co-founded a gay-straight alliance. She said, I love being out because I can be honest about who I am and give other kids courage to do the same. And ever since I've been truthfully out, I haven't wanted another drink. I wouldn't ever take back my decision to be true to myself. So this was the article that of those, I think it was three that I sent you that rang some bells for you. Can you tell me about that and how reading this influenced you at the time? Yeah. Um, so I, the thing I remember from, or why, from the three you sent me, I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is the one I was reading, um, was the, the mention about going to confession and telling a priest, <laughs> um, because I grew up Catholic. So, um, and my mom was very religious. Um, so that stood out to me a lot. Um, like I also had that same fear that she talks about, about like going to hell and all of that. And, um, you know, I think when you grow up Catholic, that's kind of just what happens. Like it instills in you this like, you know, fear of being damned in the afterlife. Um, so that really stood out to me a lot when I read it. Um, in 2005, I would have been 15, so probably in my sophomore year of high school, um, which also, I guess the timing makes sense. So like in my high school, um, most of the kind of gay or queer students around me were guys, right? And um, with the exception, there was one lesbian couple going out and I was just like floored at like, that is a thing that you can do. <laughs> like what and um i i think even before high school like maybe since i was i want to say 10 or something i had like in the very very far reaches in the back corners of my mind like known that there was something different and like you know that evolved into like oh maybe i am gay but like i couldn't ever admit that to myself like i was petrified at that so reading this article and seeing that couple in my high school were just kind of like mind-blowing for me. Can you tell me about the piece that you were working on um, that uh, inspired you to reach out to me and, and see if I could track this down for you? Yeah, so I'm working on my first um, full-length collection of poetry right now, and um, it's kind of loosely themed around revisiting like icons that I grew up with and revisiting them now from, you know, my current perspective and being out as queer and non-binary and also like being more kind of like politically like unapologetically Asian American like because growing up I always felt very wishy-washy about how to identify culturally as well being multiracial so um just revisiting kind of youth and um but now from this much more informed perspective 
and way of seeing the world. Um, so I was writing a piece kind of revisiting like those nerve wracking moments in high school <laughs> um, and like, you know, just what that was like of like saying in the front of my mind, like, I'm not gay. Like, no, I'm not. I mean, I people who are, that's great, but I'm not. <laughs> um, but then like inside being like, you know, reading this Teen People article and having my mind blown or sneaking, watching pirated copies of the L word, like under the sheets after my parents had gone to bed. Like, um, so, you know, it's very much a lot of cognitive dissonance at the time. Um, just a lot of layers going on. So, um, yeah. How did you come to this point of, of gaining an understanding of your own identity? Honestly, like I left high school and I went to a women's college, so <laughs> that made things a lot easier. Um, but but also, you know, it's still like a, it's still kind of a vulnerable thing to try and admit to yourself, like a new understanding of your identity, even if you're in like a very supportive place as I was. And, and um, just one, being in a different environment really helped. Um, and I think so once I got to college, like I came across the word genderqueer for the first time. And I was like, that's it. That's me. <laughs> that is me right there. Um, and I think that also made things make a lot of sense too. Like, so part of my book, I, I have like a large chunk of it devoted to pop punk music and not just like the musicality of it, but also like the icons at the time. And like, they were very genderqueer in their presentation. So I'm like, this makes a lot of sense <laughs> to me now. Um, so I think being in a different environment helped. I think when I was in college too, I had this, my school had this like beautiful, just ginormous library, like super immense. Um, and I was a history major and actually the thing that I would love reading at the library or just like looking at in the stacks and being like, oh, I need to read this and this and this and this, um, were kind of like the grassroots, like 1970s, 1980s, like feminist anthologies that were all put out, like intersectional feminist anthologies and everything. And um, I think when I was in college, like, because I was still trying to understand myself, like, I was kind of looking for a map in a way. I was like, someone needs to have done this, right? Someone needs to have figured out their queerness. Someone needs to have figured out what it means to be like a first generation college student, right? Like someone needs to have done this before. Like I need guidance from somewhere and some book on the shelf is going to have it for me. So um, that was, those were, um, that was a big part of my college experience was trying to make my way through forebears and ancestors and what they had written um and again seeking out those like very personal stories like I had noticed in the magazines I read like growing up and um just trying to learn from those stories too did you find those books or are you writing those books <laughs> both and I guess <laughs> um because I would look at those books on the shelf and I'd be like, okay, well, this book says it's about Asian American feminists, but no one in here is queer. No one in here is Filipino, right? Like no one here like is a first generation in this table of contents. Um, or like this book says it's about queer feminism, but all these people in the table of contents are white. So, like, you know, it was intersectional in some ways, but not as intersectional as they could have been, I mm. think. Um, but I mean, they were taking the first stabs at getting stories out there, right? So mm -hmm. like, 
that was important legwork. And I think right now what I'm trying to do in my book is be the book I needed when I was younger um, or write the book that I needed when I was younger. And a lot of like individual things that I have published, like individual pieces are in kind of modern day grassroots versions of those anthologies, like very small scale. And so they have like a special place in my heart <laughs> um, when I'm looking at places to send poetry to or something. Hmm. In the research that I did about your practice, um, you described um, the the body and home and land as very important subjects in your work. Can you explore that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a great question. <laughs> and I feel like I could say a lot about that. Um, how do I say it? In an way. <laughs> um, so, so I grew up in northern New Jersey, very close to New York and um, in this working class suburb and <laughs> New Jersey is the kind of place that leaves its marks on you like even when you leave, <laughs> it, it, you, you never lose that sense of New Jersey, <laughs> if you are from there. Um, and I think the place question is kind of, I think, bears on me a lot thinking of like, so I started writing a lot really in earnest, maybe five years ago after my mom died and she died, I would say youngest, she was 67, like, and it was sudden, it was unexpected. And um, in a way, like, so in a way I'm writing the book that I needed when I was younger, but I also see this book as kind of speaking for me and my mom and our stories. And she never got like a platform to share her stories on. And um, I say that she came, she was a storyteller herself too. She taught English to immigrants and um, kind of taught them how to tell their own stories. So, and she came from the Philippines, she immigrated, she stayed in New York. And um, so I think like those places, like the Philippines, New York, New Jersey, like they all kind of really influence my sense of place and understanding in the world. I think there is a special connection. Like if you are kind of in touch with their cultural roots, like you have that connection to place too. Like, I think that's always loaded. That's always in there. Um, you know, so even though I've only visited the Philippines once in my life, like I remember going to a landscape and it still has its marks on me too. And um, we visited we visited a city called Baguio City, which is where a lot of kind of northern indigenous tribes in the Philippines live. And um, and like, I've tried to do my own sort of ancestry work and like try to learn more about that side of the family, which is hard when you're in the diaspora and like looking at things that were processed by like white missionaries centuries ago. And then like a second generation of white person came in and digitized it and typed up things wrong. And like, you can't look at the original image, right? So um, it's been a very patchy process <laughs> to say the least. But um, I think I have found like connection to like some of those Northern indigenous tribes potentially, but you know, it's not something that like, I would say like, I feel super cognizant of or aware of because I didn't grow up with that culture necessarily. I grew up with my mom's version of Filipino culture, which is very much like the Tagalog kind of culture. Um, and so at any rate, 
when we went to the Philippines and I, I went to that location in Baguio City, like, I remember feeling like just physically like much more connected though to the landscape and the ground I was standing on and like being like, this is something that's in me. Um, I don't know how, <laughs> I didn't know how at the time, um, you know, and I only started looking into this side of my family more after my mom died. But um, yeah, that's what I would say about place. And I think that's always just gonna be a current in my work somehow. Um, Hmm. I'm sorry you lost your mom. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I would say that is young, 67. Yeah. Yeah. I I watched a, a video of you reading a poem, and mm -hmm. um, there was a line in the poem that said, home is being in transit. Mm -hmm. When my mom died, um, it was after a surgery she had at New York Presbyterian while Cornell Hospital in Manhattan. And um, the way to get from my hometown in New Jersey to New York is um, taking the bus usually is the quickest way. And um, the bus would drop you off at Port Authority, which is this bus station in New York. And honestly, when you walk through there, it does not look like it's changed since the 80s. So I was walking through there and I was like, this is what it would have looked like when my mom arrived here. <laughs> right. And like, this is you know, this place where so many people like go through it in and out every day, like on their way to other places. But like, here it is this constant kind of thing that doesn't look like it's changed in at least 30 years. Um, so it was a very kind of surreal moment um, to be going through there. And thinking about like, my mom started her life here in New York, and like, this is the end. And, um, and here I am in this kind of janky bus station. <laughs> so um, and, she, and as you said earlier, she carried you through that bus station as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after, um, after my mom had met my dad and got married and moved to New Jersey, she still worked in New York. And, um, when she was pregnant with me, she commuted from New Jersey to Queens and like this insane, like two subway or like multi-layered public transit commute. So like. I don't know, Port Authority is like, it's just this place that keeps haunting me. Um, <laughs> I've never been there, but I used to live in Toronto, which also used to have a janky bus station. So I absolutely know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's just the vibe for bus stations, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Something that Resi noted when we corresponded about the Teen People article was that teen people asked for reader feedback about the article, about Heather's decision to come out in the form of a poll. Not just a call for letters to the editor, but a poll, the results of which were published on Teen People's website. Can you imagine? At the end of the article, teen people invited their readers to take a poll. Uh, the poll asked, do you agree with Heather's decision to come out? Uh, vote by texting the appropriate code, followed by your thoughts, to number. Use code vote A if you think Heather made the right decision. Use code vote B if you think she never should have told people she was gay. See your results at teenpeople.com forward slash your life. So what do you think? Do you think teen people made the right decision asking their readers to evaluate somebody's life choices like this? 
oh my gosh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what a horrible idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine if like this person who like just poured their heart out into this national publication, right? Like went to the website and like saw like 67% don't agree with you. I thought you should have stayed in the closet. Like <laughs> what the actual, like. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's fascinating. I was reading this, um, uh, just sort of, you know, preparing my questions for today. And I was thinking like, if you think about the time, it was probably some sort of editor who just thought like, this is the time when you can text, like, you know, cell phones are becoming widely available at this point in 2005. I didn't spend a lot of time watching reality TV in that era, but I feel like back then there were these shows that you could text in like live and contribute mm -hmm. to polls and things um, in the middle of some big reality extravaganza. Right. And um, it probably was just coming out of that time. They were just like, sure, why not have a poll and, and see what teen people readers think about this, this poor girl's <laughs> <laughs> life choices. But, um, but yeah, I think in retrospect, there was kind of a lack of sensitivity there because um, it's sort of an example actually of, um, of the magazine kind of putting one of their readers on the spot online um, in a really early period, you know, sort of pre like early, early social media, pre Twitter, but like MySpace era social media. Um, but she's also, she was 18 years old. It's, it feels icky in retrospect. Yeah. Very icky. Yeah. So much. Ick. Yeah. <laughs> It probably I felt think, icky at the time too, but I think for those of us looking back, um, right. Yeah. I mean, I think you're probably right. I think it's was some short-sighted editor being like, oh, this is just what you do. Like you kind of call in or you text in. And I mean, I wonder how many people like actually answered that survey. <laughs> like, I don't know, or how many people viewed the survey results online. Like I didn't really follow up with team people on like their website or anything like that. Um, I was busy in high school, so I didn't have all this time in the world. <laughs> I think when I was reading teen people, they barely even had a website or it might've been like an AOL presence. Um, so for me, the magazine was more interesting than whatever was going on online. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it does seem almost like they were kind of gamifying the, the content. And also I think to use, you know, a kind of a modern media parlance, they were actually trying to extend the life of the content because now social media managers have to push content out on all these different platforms. And in a way, this is kind of what they were doing. They were taking something from the print magazine and giving mm -hmm. it some life online. But yeah, also this is an 18 year old girl's life yeah. <laughs> and they did not use a pseudonym. This, this was her, her real name out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in this teen people article, we have someone who was then 18 uh, looking back on the past few years, wrestling with her own identity um, and of course I'd be interested to track her down and to ask her now to reflect on that time. Um, but I'm going to ask you, the reader of this article instead, um, looking back now on that time in your life, what advice would you give your teenage self today? Oh, ah, <laughs> uh, so many things. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I would say it's okay. You can like breathe, calm down. It's going to be fine. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, I actually like, I just wrote a few pieces that um, were for 
uh, a call for work that was like what we wish we knew about growing up queer and Filipino in the United States. <laughs> um, so I kind of thought about this a little bit. Um, but I mean, there's so much you could say with regards to queerness. And I think the first thing I would say is that it's going to be fine. And the world is going to change in ways you don't know yet. Um, you know, like at this time in 2005, like the United States was freaking out over quote unquote gay marriage, like not even marriage, gay marriage, gay marriage, uh, you know, and like Ellen DeGeneres still pisses people off and like, um, you know, at that time. So it, but the, the world changes a lot. Um, 2005 to, so almost 20 years, right? Um, there's a lot that has gone on since then. Um, and, you know, I think I would do sort of like a, I would try to be like the ghost of like years future in a way and be like, this is what is going to happen in the future and it's going to be fine. And, you know, you're going to get married and it's going to be great. And it's going to have, going to have a beautiful, like gay marriage, like super gay marriage. Um, and it's going to be great. Um, so I would say, I would say that, um, you know, that like the world does change in ways you don't expect. Um, I think during that time in high school, like in adolescence, like I was feeling kind of weird, like gender identity things that I didn't even know were gender identity things. But um, one of the things that I wrote for this call for work was like, you know, the name that you hate, it doesn't have to be the name you stick with for your life. And, you know, you don't feel like you're punk now, you feel like a poser, but the most punk thing you'll ever do in your life is change your name. So, <laughs> you know, get ready for that. Um, so that would be one thing I would say as well. Um, and I mean, I could say a lot more <laughs> and maybe my younger self would be like, whoa, that's too much, back off. Um, but those would be the highlights. <laughs> nice, nice. Where do you see your career developing from here? It sounds like you're kind of on the cusp of a, a new phase in your career. I mean, I hope so. <laughs> I would love that. Um, I would love to be making more art, writing more things. And um, that's the hope. Mm, same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, it's been so lovely to speak with you. Um, I really appreciate the time that you've taken. I am so happy you reached out to me as well and that I could um, help track down this thing for you. So I hope that uh, the piece that you're putting together will be um, will be successful. I'm sure it will be because it sounds like it's coming from a place of um, real self-knowledge. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And I really appreciate your help in tracking down that piece. And um, whenever my book does come out, you can expect a shout out in the acknowledgements and um, for sure. And, uh, yeah, it was really nice to meet you as well. Just lovely to meet you. next time on Teen People for an interview with the British journalist Sarah Dighton about her new book, Toxic, Women, Fame, and the Tabloid 2000s. The book is already out in the UK with the British title Toxic, Women, Fame, and the Naughties, as in the Noughts, Noughts, or 2000s. It's being published in Canada and the US this month in January of 2024. So look out for an interview with Sarah next on Teen People. 
She describes how iconic women like the Teen People mainstays Britney Spears, Paris Hilton, and Lindsay Lohan fell victim to their own fame against the shifting media landscape that created the internet culture we all know and love, haha, today. Not only did their fame come at a very public price, Sarah argues that their mistreatment by bloggers and paparazzi, even members of their own families, had implications for all women in the form of upskirt culture and online body shaming, as well as the conservative politics that gave rise to Donald Trump. See, we talk about real things on this podcast. That's the beauty of teen people. I'm Anna Soper. Thank you so much for listening. Please have a listen to past episodes, post your thoughts wherever you post, and come back next time.